Hello, everyone, and welcome to our IWSCC podcast about all things supplier diversity uh, and brought to you by Remote Video Productions. If you're watching this on YouTube, the ASL interpretation has been provided by Maple Communications Canada. And my name is Deidre Guy. I am the uh, founder of the Inclusive Workplace and Supply Council of Canada, or IWSCC. And we um, work to support businesses that are owned by either veterans or people with disabilities here in Canada to connect them with the supply chains for large corporations and governments across Canada. These organizations are looking to diversify their supply chains uh, and add diverse owned businesses into it, try to do business with more and more of them on a, on a regular basis. So I'm super pleased today to have Lisa Taylor here with us from Challenge Factory. Lisa and I met uh, when we were putting together our veteran uh, research project survey that uh, that we have out live now. So if you happen to be a veteran or someone active in the military who owns a business, did own a business or wants to own a business, please look for our survey. It's only going to be available for the next couple of weeks, but we do want everyone to participate uh, who qualifies so we can have the best uh, baseline information about uh, veteran businesses in Canada. So Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Sure. So I just to start, say that it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I've been looking forward to it all week. Oh, awesome. um, so I am the president of a Toronto-based Canadian organization called Challenge Factory. Challenge Factory is a research agency and consultancy that is entirely focused on the future of work. And I founded the company 10 years ago. So we've been studying aspects of the future of work for 10 years, which is much longer than the future of work has been a hashtag or has been in the news recently because of COVID or because of some of the other, you know, hot topical issues that are uh, in the news now. And because we're both a research agency and a consultancy, what that means is we have 10 years of research and data as well as practical experience working inside organizations, alongside leaders, asking questions that everyone's asking and trying to figure out what the answers are. And so it's a, it's a really interesting spot to be in right at this moment in time to be able to take some of the questions that people say, well, nobody knows the answer to insert your question or topic right. here, and to be able to say, actually, there are ways to know the answer to that question. And, uh, and those are the conversations that I love to be part of. So I have so many things in, and I know we only have a half hour, so we're gonna have to do this again, or even just, you know, over a glass of wine some night, but <laughs> there's so much stuff I'd like to, to chat with you about. Sure. Um, but you've done so much in your career. Alex and I were doing some digging on you and I was like, wow, I, I, this woman has got to be at least 60. She doesn't look anywhere near <laughs> it, but with all the things that you've done in your career. So so tell us a bit about some of your accomplishments and, and please, this is your time to brag. Like, don't be <laughs> humble. Just show off for yourself for a minute. All right. My team always tells me I need to get a little bit better at that part, but maybe I'll, I'll, for me, it's always easier to focus on the work. So I'll focus okay. on, I'll focus on the work. So <laughs> I graduated um, out of a master's of business administration, an MBA with a major in strategic management and a joint program as a master's of public administration with public policy. So I have a, okay. an educational background integrating business and public policy together. And um, my initial uh, entrance into the workplace, I believed that I was headed to work in a health 
healthcare related consulting um, practice. And on my very first day at work, I learned that they had moved me to a really, really technical consulting practice. Um, and so I jumped into technology. This was in the 90s with no technical background, no mm-hmm. real technical education, no, not even understanding what my manager was saying to me because <laughs> this was not the path I had chosen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm not really sure what it says about me that I had just finished six years of post-secondary education focused in a very specific path and just by random fluke, got shifted to a different path. And I just said, okay, let's try that. (laughs) So that was the beginning for me of a 12-year technology career. Um, And I worked with amazing companies, uh, big global firms, Deloitte, Hewlett Packard. But really what it exposed me to was I was the people and process side of massive technology projects, just as the internet was dawning. So my first business meetings was going to executives and trying to convince them that the internet was actually going to be a thing and that they needed to pay attention to it for business purposes. (laughs) And it was a tough sell. Like sometimes they jumped right on board and we had amazing clients and projects, investment banks that were early adopters. And we did work in nine different countries. And other times massive companies would say, no, this is never going to be a business tool. That intr- that initial exposure, even though it wasn't my first choice, you know, to be in these technology projects, but that initial exposure where my job was to think through and what will this mean for the people inside of the organization and what will this mean for the processes of how the organization operates had me on the very leading edge of very radical revolutionary change right at the very Mm -hmm. beginning of my career. And so it's Mm -hmm. from that perspective that I then went on to be able to continue to stay at the forefront of where revolutionary change continues to happen. And so uh, leading through some of the work that I did at Hewlett Packard, leading a very large team, recognizing that the last team that I was managing at Hewlett Packard was about 135 staff, The average Mm. age on the team was 47, and the average (laughs) tenure with the company was 18 years. And recognizing that the way that I was supposed to be managing them was not the way that they wanted career conversations and future-focused conversations to happen, I became convinced that the next wave of really massive revolution, like what I had experienced in my early career, was not going to be led by technology but it was going to be led by a changing workforce. And so Mm. I quit my job at Hewlett Packard and launched a business way before anyone was talking about topics related to demographic change, the aging workforce, uh, hybrid work, you know, all of the different topics that are now so mainstream. Um, I launched Challenge Factory in order to study it and to get out ahead of that curve. That's fantastic. And, and you do a couple of other things too. You're on, on the board of, a, of, of at least one organization. Uh, are there more than one? Yeah. So I'm on a couple of boards. I'm on SEREC's board, which is a national charity focusing on advancing career development for all Canadians. <clears throat> and I'm also on um, the board of the Canadian Special Operations Regiment Association. So Challenge Factory identified veterans as a specific hidden pool of talent. So what that means is that's a group of candidates that want to be engaged in the workforce, but employers don't see them. 
Mm-hmm. So we recognize that veterans fall into this category of hidden talent uh, about seven years ago. And since that time have done significant research, consulting, uh, policy consultations with levels of government in order to be able to continue to advance the integration of veteran talent into the civilian workforce, really because veterans are awesome and have incredible skills that are exactly the type of skills that uh, workplaces that are experiencing ongoing shifting landscapes and change need to be able to incorporate. Here, here, I totally agree on the veteran front. I think that, uh, you know, we work with a lot of veteran-owned businesses and constantly impressed by the scope of capabilities that they have and just that um, that persistence. So I can see exactly what you're saying, where it'd be very beneficial in the work world. What are some tips uh, for employers listening to attract and, and, and keep talented workers such as veterans? What would be some, some ideas for them keep in mind, especially in this changing workforce? Yeah. So, you know, I'll start maybe with a couple generic tips on how to keep employees and then uh, touch on a couple of tips specifically for attracting and retaining veterans. So, okay. you know, in today's market, really, empl- it's not a matter of just posting a job and getting flooded with candidates and then getting your pick. And what candidates are looking for today, what job seekers are looking for today, is to understand that the company that they are applying to knows who they are, has clear values, and that it's a place that they want to be. So the first step for any employer to attract any talent, regardless of who they are and where their background comes from, is to recognize that they have values that are within their company and a brand as an employer, they need to know what that is. Mm. And if they don't know what that is, it's going to be very hard to track the type of talent that they're looking for. So even in a recent CBC interview that one of my colleagues did, you know, they were talking with owners of restaurants and they were talking about employer brand. So this isn't just for big companies. This is for everyone. Working in mm-hmm. a you know mom and pop restaurant in a small town is not the same as working at a major chain where there's very specific dress code and a very specific type of waitress or wait staff that you're looking for within your workforce. So everyone has an employer brand and you need to know what it is. Um, and the second is you need to be upfront and show leadership of exactly what's the job, what are the benefits, what are your policies on things. You know, a blog was just posted on challengefactory.ca by our latest hire, uh, an, a new graduate. And one of the things that she wrote about was so often in the job interviews, the employers, the interviewers were asking her what she wanted in terms of hybrid, remote, or um, in-office work. She's a candidate. She's just trying to figure out how to give the best answer in order to be able to land the job. Mm -hmm. And this felt like a trick. It felt either like they didn't know what they were doing or there was a right answer that she could not guess what it was going to be. And it, Mm. it really put her on her heels. So understanding that being clear about what it means to work in your organization is really important to the candidates you're trying to attract. And then on the veteran side, that is all true, especially because they're just trying to make sense of what the civilian landscape is like. Yeah. They're really, you know, in, in a way, we write about this a lot. They're like newcomers. They have their yes. own language. They have their own culture. 
They have lived within a very specific type of employment arrangement. There is lots about your workplace that is foreign to them. And they learn quickly. I mean, our veterans uh, and members that have served, they know how to adapt to different cultures. It's not Mm -hmm. a matter of them not being able to adapt, but they need the cues. They need you to tell them what those cues are so they can do that learning and adapt to your culture. Veterans also like to see that you're specifically interested in veterans. So having things like a veteran-friendly credential or a veteran-friendly course that you've taken, and I have a little plug for that or information that we can get to maybe at the very end to talk about that a little bit, um, is something that's really helpful for them to know that this isn't just random, that you are actually interested in them. And the last tip is veterans like to work where there's other veterans. So Mm -hmm. finding your first veteran hire is the hardest. And once you've found one, first of all, you're going to recognize the value that they bring, but also they can help become ambassadors that then help you find others. So I'm going to skip uh, order of questions that that I gave to you. So um, hopefully we can stay on track. When I get to the same question again, if I ask it, just remind me, I've already asked it. Uh, You know, aging workforce right here. But (laughs) but, yeah, what are the advantages then? List some of the advantages of, of employing veterans or in our case, of course, we talk about veterans in your supply chain. So as a, a veteran-owned business, uh, what would be a, a you know specific advantages specific to veterans that uh, you would have as an employer or as a purchaser adding them to your supply chain? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about culture, leadership, and teams, and, you know, when we talk about what's happening today in terms of employee engagement and wanting to make sure that we have engaged workforces working in all different environments, sometimes remote, and needing to be able to stay connected to each other, veterans understand how to unite around a mission. They understand how to foster and build each other up. They understand how to not just be loyal to each other, but to really build the kinds of relationships that make the work better. These are all things that, you know, as I'm saying them, if, if, if you were a veteran and you would hear me saying this, it would, it would be like so obvious mm-hmm. that this wouldn't even be something that they would necessarily recognize as an advantage because it isn't until they experience their first experience in the civilian workforce that they realize, oh, This is not something that everyone just knows how to do. And so Mm -hmm. not only have they participated in those environments, but they know how to lead in those environments and they know how to follow in those environments. And followership is important to mention here too. It doesn't mean that they just take orders, just the opposite actually. What it means is they know how to recognize what the leader needs and how to leverage the resources, the energy, the, you know, all, all of the pieces so that that leader achieves their goal. So it's certainly not just falling mm-hmm. in line. It requires a lot of creativity, a ton of collaboration, enormous motivation skills. And at the end of the day, a real focus on what's our mission um, so that uh, whether that mission is a weekly goal or whether that mission is actually you know, a yearly goal or to dominate the marketplace within the next two to three years, they know how to keep everything aligned and moving forward along those lines. And if I can add one other piece to this, one of the things, you know, the research that we've been doing and the work that we've really been focusing on has been how small business has struggled through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And certainly we've seen disruption of supply chains, a need for creativity, a need to, you know, the plan 
that you had no longer seems to be the plan you can move forward with. These are all very common within military operations and uh, the ability to recognize that supply chains are going to be threatened and you still need to be able to maintain your supply. The -hmm. ability to recognize that a plan sees maybe its first day and then needs to be rethought without being wasteful. These are all things that veterans bring to your team. And so what do you say then to those folks that believe the hype about the stigma surrounding veterans uh, and once they once they release um what do you what do you have to say i mean i've got lots of words but i'd like to hear yours <laughs> yeah so um in the um canadian guide to hiring veterans which is we'll put it in the show notes maybe or i'll, oh, I'll make sure that yeah. it's available that not, yeah. it's a free pdf download it's in both official languages sponsored by veterans affairs canada Um, you know, we kind of hit some of the major myths head on. And so some of the myths, Canadians, civilians don't really know veterans or members that serve all that well. We're kind of separate from our military, unlike our, you know, American counterparts. And so that, you know, that requires us to really challenge some of the things that we think are true. So, you know, one of the ones that normally comes up is usually around the issue of mental health. Mm -hmm. But... Any manager of a team of any size will tell you that mental health is an issue in every Canadian workplace, Yes, uh, that you don't have to be a veteran in order to struggle with mental health issues, um, that, you know, there's data and research that shows that, you know, the actual percentage of veterans that have uh, an issue in this area that would require some kind of severe accommodation or significant accommodation is really not that different than the average Canadian population. Um, PTSD is not the exclusive domain, and that's also not the only issue that uh, Canadians or veterans face. So there's good information and data that takes some of the stigma away from the fear that some people might have and just repositions us to say, wait a minute, these are issues in general with people in the workforce. So what might an issue specifically be with a veteran that's entering the workforce? And one of the other areas that people usually have concern about is culture fit. So Mm -hmm. the second biggest concern that usually comes up is to say, you know, well, we're not a command and control organization here, Mm -hmm. or we're not the kind of organization that we have time to give everyone specific orders for them to go and do. They need to be able (laughs) to be creative and innovative. And I would say that the Canadian military and the way that they train is 100% aligned, first of all, with continuous learning. Veterans actually are more motivated and engaged in activities that have them continually learn than the average Canadian. So they will be more likely to want to continue to display creativity and new ways of doing work than your average employee. And secondly, the training that they receive really gives them an opportunity to see that there may be different people leading at different times, including themselves, and their job is to make everybody successful. So exactly what employers say that they want, they then say, but the culture fit's not going to work with veterans without realizing it actually will as long as there's a period of translation, as long as we go back to what I said earlier, where they may not know the language, they won't know what they call standard operating procedures or just the rhythm of how business gets done. They need a little help understanding the culture. And once they know it, then there's no issue. Right. I spoke to a veteran, this is a few years ago now, and, and he shared with me that uh, when he uh, transitioned out of the military, 
he didn't know how to get health insurance. Right. And I thought that's that was for me this this whole thing that I'm doing with IWSCC has just been one series of of light bulb moments. And I, and I love those moments. I love learning. And so I was like, wow, I, that again had not even occurred to me. So that the the difference in military life compared to civilian life is that drastic. Like you know everything is is there and covered. And so not knowing how to get health insurance seems like such a a simple thing for most of us to do. But it's a perfect example of how different uh, that veteran life can be. So we hear a lot uh, about youth employment in in today's society, but your work suggests uh, working with uh, those of us who've been on the planet a little bit longer. And so how's that being received by the business community? It's an interesting topic. I mean, we've been studying older workers. I shared with you the kind of origin story of Challenge Factory and my team and recognizing the role that older workers could be playing in organizations for a long time. Um, now, of course, ageism and older workers is all the rage in the news and being talked about, not the least uh, because of the labor shortages that we're experiencing and recognizing that, you know, if there's a population that is interested in working and uh, talented and skilled, and we're saying we don't have enough workers, there, there's probably a way to make those things fit together. So I would say from the business community, there is more interest and appetite now than we have ever seen. And yet there are some, uh, some biases and myths that still need to be busted, um, that people still have concerns about. Um, and there's structural issues. So our, you know, when the retirement age was set at 65, it was the 1930s and life expectancy was only 62. Hmm. So retirement age being set at 65 was never intended to last as a permanent age. And as our life expectancy has now gone up to 83, we have remained fixed in our working life expectancy as if careers are going to end where mm-hmm. they did in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the internal structures inside of organizations is not set up for career moves in your late 50s and 60s that give you the kind of work that you're interested in. Performance management systems aren't set up to reward and recognize those types of activities. So employers, you know, they are slowly recognizing that like I said at the beginning, the big revolutionary change that's going to happen, that's going to increase Canada's productivity, that's going to help us stay on the leading edge, is that we need to break down some of the old ways that we used to do things, including how we used to manage our workforce. We need to update it for the 21st century and the, you know, the world we're living mm-hmm. in now, as opposed to the world that it was originally um, designed for. And so I'm hopeful. I, I run a company where this is a major area that we focus in. I, I'm hopeful and see significant progress, but it is slow and it is not just about marketing slogans. There are real reasons why managers are trained to have certain biases against mm-hmm. older workers and we need to combat those. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I'm <clears throat> fairly close to 60 now. And I have people in my life that are the same age as me and they talk about retirement at 60 and or 65. I'm sorry. And I think, no, I'm, I can't, I'm not doing that. I'm, I, I don't even believe I'm almost 60, first of all. So there's, there's no <laughs> way I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe I'm at 65 in time to quit. You know, I do lots of fun and exciting things and I've had several different careers in my life. I've got lots of ability and, you know, I, I'm not done work 
So working for myself is very helpful because I don't have anyone telling me. But yeah, I agree. I, I love all of that thought process, especially with life expectancy having gone up so markedly in the last you know, 70, 80, 90 years. Well, and I think there's real significant um, social issues that we are looking to try to address without recognizing that shortchanging careers and work is actually a contributing factor. So even from a social corporate responsibility and recognizing what's happening in the world around you, you know, social isolation and the way that older, and I mean elderly people, not older workers, but people that are actually in their 80s, 90s and 100s now, you know, the social isolation and the health related impacts and costs related to that human costs as well as actual costs to how people end up completely disconnected from community just as they're entering mm. into decades where they need the most support, mm. that starts by pushing them out of community prematurely so that they end up on their own in their late 60s, early 70s and 80s so that you know we set ourselves up for some of these self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecies. If we're gonna isolate them out of workplace communities and not replace that engagement somewhere else, they're gonna end up alone. So mm -hmm. employers have a responsibility to think about kind of what's the overall role in the type of Canada that we want to have? And what does it mean when I start to shed workers decades before they actually are ready to go? Mm -hmm. Because that used to be the way we do it. And then I'm worried or I contribute to campaigns looking at how we treat our elderly population and say, this is terrible. Someone needs to do something about it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, <clears throat> something I've been reading about lately, and, and I'm sure you're fully aware of it, is, is what they call quiet quitting. So, you know, someone who helps organize and, and attract uh, organizations that attract and retain talent. What, what do you make of this? What, I feel like a real radio talk show host because I just used that <laughs> phrase. What do you make of this? I hear it all the time on CBC. <laughs> what do you make of this? But really, what do you think about this quiet quitting uh, concept? Yeah. And maybe describe it a little bit if you can for those who are not familiar. Sure. So quiet quitting uh, is something that emerged in a TikTok video where someone was talking about this trend that they were observing or they were participating in themselves where they were no longer going to go the extra mile. So at the end of their day, when it was the end of their work day, they were going to close their laptops and quit for the day. So it's mm. not quitting organizations. This is employees drawing boundaries to say, my work has become all encompassing and I'm gonna scale back the work that I do to just commit to the hours that I'm supposed to be working. And then I'm gonna step away. I actually don't think that it is a new phenomenon. I mean, we've had work to rule. We've had other ways of describing this behavior before. Presenteeism is another word that's been used over the years to describe being present at work, but not necessarily fully engaged. And there's a couple of risks um, with quiet quitting for the employee. Uh, so for example, if you have been going the extra mile and you just decide to quietly quit, which means you do it without talking with your manager, they're going to all of a sudden wonder, What's going on? And not mm -hmm. necessarily because they want you to continue to perform at unsustainable levels, but they have certain expectations. And especially if you're remote, all of a sudden you're not behaving the way that you were. That requires a conversation. And if your workload is so high that you feel a need to quietly quit, 
that's a good reason to be talking with your manager. And on the manager side, companies need to recognize boundaries with their employees, but they also need to recognize there's certain fundamentals that especially younger employees really don't understand. And they haven't necessarily been exposed to it in the last um, you know, cycles of the pandemic as they've been entering into the workplace. One of the things that Challenge Factory has found in some of our initial work in this area is to um, recognize that employees that have only worked at hourly jobs and are now on salary don't know what that means. So yeah. they don't recognize mm-hmm. that there's like work that needs to be done and it's up to them to figure out how to get it done. And it's much less about, did I clock in at nine and leave at five? And that they need to develop a relationship with their employer And the employer needs to reach out and develop a relationship with them. It's a different style of management when the employee is in a salaried role, but thinks of themselves as an hourly employee. That's a totally different system. And then the last thing I'll say on quiet quitting, because really I'm not a fan. I don't think it's anything new. Um, And I think that there is one element that's quite dangerous. We were just talking about older workers. And the way that we ended up stuck in a 1930s model in the 2020s has to do with marketing. So there was a marketing campaign decades ago that was called Freedom 55. Mm -hmm. Freedom 55 was a marketing slogan for an insurance policy. It was never intended to be a life plan, but it was catchy. And because it caught on, it became kind of the benchmark of how we are supposed to live our life. Quiet quitting has the potential to be just as dangerous. It's not necessarily real. It's not necessarily more uh, different than other engagement issues that managers have been dealing with and working with their employees on for decades. But it can become a thing that then becomes part of the psyche that we Mm -hmm. now invent a way of working called quiet quitting. And Mm. it's taking us decades to get away from Freedom 55 now that we're living to 83. I really don't want us to get into having decades of undoing fake quiet quitting because the term caught on as a marketing term. Yes, that's a very good point. I I remember that Freedom 55, actually. Uh, And again, I wouldn't want to be stopping working at 55. I didn't. And I wouldn't want to. Yeah. So, so what led you to this specific field of work, like working with uh, veterans and, and, and older workers? Is there any, is there a personal experience that led to that? I'm just curious to know. Yeah. So I go back to really that team that I was managing where I would have career conversations. I was, you know, supposed to, as a manager, at least twice a year, have a career conversation with all of my staff and to a person, they would answer pretty much the same way. First, they'd say, Lisa, you're, you know, I've been here 17 years. You're the 16th manager I've had this conversation Mm. with. Um, And then they would say, I know I'm supposed to tell you what I want to do over the next five years. But really, the honest truth is I just need to pay off my mortgage Mm. or have my youngest graduate from post-secondary. And then I'll worry what I want to do next. And I would say to them, First, how long is that? And some of them would give me answers. It's like, it's only 12 more years. Well, I was a young manager. I was in my early 30s. I hadn't had a 12-year career yet. So the idea that my entire career was the period of time they just had to get through was appalling. 
And the second thing that they, you know, that I would say to them is let's pretend that day is now. How would you, how do you decide what you want to do? And nobody knew. Nobody knew how to make that decision once they had the freedom to be able to make it. So that led me to a deep interest in the field, the formal field of career development, which is not well understood in Canada, but is a very formal, robust research-based field that looks at the integration of work, life, learning, and identity over the full life course, age five to 95. And it had me think about this population that I had on my team. We were doing great. Business-wise, we were doing great. Engagement-wise, great. But my entire team was just waiting for these years to go by. And I wondered, what does that mean for actual productivity and the productivity Mm. of our country? And if we could solve that issue, if people actually moved into careers that revitalized them and re-energized them and they weren't just waiting, how much more could we actually do? So that was the origin of why older workers was the initial um, focus. When I launched Challenge Factory, we've, of course, expanded onto many topics from there. And the similarity of an older worker going for a job or the experience of an older worker transitioning out of their job where they lose their social connections, they lose their identity, they can no longer introduce themselves as the vice president of XYZ Bank. They can only introduce themselves in past tense. I used to be. Mm-hmm. It was those types of tricky identity-based transitions that a veteran actually mentioned to mm-hmm. me, you know what, you talk about this with older workers, but that's how I feel. I've lost wow. my community. I can't use my title. I don't have the same culture cues as I had anymore. And I don't know where I'm going next. And so hmm. that led us to say, you know, is there a common thread between the transition older workers go through when they have to, when they have to move into new careers in their 60s and 70s? as what veterans experience when all of a sudden they have to think about things like what is health benefits and how do I arrange for that? And, you know, who do I find to be my dentist and all of the work life integration elements that they need to take care of. So that was really the origin story and the commonality between those populations led me to then do much deeper research on what's unique about veterans. I know we spoke about this in passing uh, before this podcast, but I would love uh, if and when the time comes that you you get your your brain and your hands in the disability end of the <laughs> of our of our country because I think that there's so much that you could be doing there. So uh, I see that we're at our time. <clears throat> um, I'd like to thank you so much for being here. I, I really appreciate doing this. It, it was kind of short notice that we that we even had the conversation for coming onto the podcast. And, and there's so much that that uh, we have to learn from you. So I hope you'll come back and join us again, maybe one time next year with some of the, the new stuff that's ongoing. But thank you again, Lisa, for being here and all the fabulous information that you've shared. I, it's, it's just wonderful. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back. And maybe before I go, if some of the ways that Challenge Factory thinks about things or, you know, the work that we're doing is of interest, there is an opportunity for small businesses and for veterans to go through a really unique program in the month of October 2022, where it's 
uh, it's completely sponsored. So it's at no charge and it provides an opportunity for those that are looking to hire veterans and veterans that are looking to work specifically within the small and medium sized business to get a little bit of training and tools, hands-on tools and really great advice. So especially for the organizations that may not have robust formal HR and recruitment departments, this program might be something mm-hmm. that really supercharges your recruitment in these tight labor markets. And you'll end up with a certification, a, a micro-credential as a veteran-ready employer that then can help mm-hmm. you attract more of this talented uh set of skill sets and uh, and individuals that are in your community and looking for work. So that can be found on our website at challengefactory.ca slash V-S-B-C-C. Thank you. And we'll be sharing that information within our community as well. So if you're part of the IWSCC community, you'll you'll see that shared uh, very soon in, in, in some of our, I guess, social media and some of our other promotional things that we do. So thank you again, Lisa, for being here. Uh, thank you for taking the time. And uh, thank you to the rest of you for joining us uh, for more supplier diversity content. Check us out at iwscc.ca. You can find us on YouTube, uh, this particular podcast, or listen to it uh, on your favorite podcast platforms. We have new episodes every couple of weeks, and so there's lots going on, uh, lots going on with IWSCC in general. So if you want to learn more about supplier diversity and veteran and disabled-owned businesses, follow us on social media for all of the updates. And thank you all for being here. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much.